Chapter Four of Home Life in Colonial Days by Alice Morse Earle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Serving of Meals. Perhaps no greater difference exists between any mode of olden times and that of today than can be seen in the manner of serving the meals of the family. In the first place, the very dining-table of the colonists was not like our present ones. It was a long and narrow board, sometimes but three feet wide, with no legs attached to it. It was laid on supports or trestles, shaped usually something like a sawhorse. Thus it was literally a board, and was called a table-board, and the linen cover used at meals was not called a table-cloth, but a board-cloth or board-clothes as smoothly sawed and finished boards were not so plentiful at first in the colonies as might naturally be thought when we remember the vast encircling forests all such boards were carefully treasured and used many times to avoid sawing others by the tedious and weary process of pit sawing hence portions of packing boxes or chests which had carried stores from england to the colonies were made into table boards one such oaken table board still in existence has on the underside in quaint lettering the name and address of the Boston settler to whom the original packing box was sent in 1638. The old-time board cloth was in no way inferior in quality or whiteness to our present table linen, for we know how proud colony wives and daughters were of the linen of their own spinning weaving and bleaching the linen tablecloth was either of holland huckaback dowless osnaburg or lockram all heavy and comparatively coarse materials or of fine damask just as today some of the handsome board cloths were even trimmed with lace. The colonists had plenty of napkins, more as a rule than families of corresponding means and station own today. They had need of them, for when America was first settled, forks were almost unknown to English people being used for eating in luxurious italy alone 
where travellers having seen and found them useful and cleanly afterwards introduced them into england so hands had to be constantly employed for holding food instead of the forks we now use and napkins were therefore as constantly necessary the first fork brought to america was for governor john winthrop in boston in sixteen thirty three and it was in a leather case with a knife and a bodkin if the governor ate with a fork at the table he was doubtless the only person in the colony who did so thirty or forty years later a few two-tined iron and silver forks were brought across the water and used in new york and virginia as well as massachusetts and by the end of the century they had come into scant use at the tables of persons of wealth and fashion the first mention of a fork in virginia is in an inventory dated sixteen seventy seven this was of a single fork the salt cellar or cellar as it was called was the centerpiece of the table quote, set in the middest of the table unquote, says an old trustees on laying the table it was often large and high of curious device in silver and was then called a standing salt guests of honor were seated above the salt that is near the end of the table where sat the host and hostess side by side while children and persons who were not of much dignity or account as guests were placed below the salt that is below the middle of the table there is owned by harvard university and here shown in illustration a great silver salt given to the college in sixteen forty four when the new seat of learning was but eight years old at the table it divided graduates the faculty and such from the undergraduates it was valued at five pounds one shilling three pence at five shillings an ounce which was equal to a hundred dollars to-day a rich gift which shows to me the profound affection of the settlers for the new college it is inscribed with the name of the giver mr richard harris it is of simple english design well known during that century and made in various sizes there is no doubt that many of similar patent though not so heavy or so rich were seen on the tables of substantial colonists they are named in many wills 
often a small projecting arm was attached to one side over which a folded napkin could be thrown to be used as a cover for the salt cellar was usually kept covered not only to preserve cleanliness but in earlier days to prevent the ready introduction of poison there are some very entertaining and curious old english books which were written in the sixteenth century to teach children and young rustics correct and elegant manners at table and also helpful ways in which to serve others these books are called the baby's book the book of nurture the book of courtesy etc and with the exception of variations in the way of serving a dinner and a few obsolete customs and in the names and shapes and materials of the different dishes plates etc used at the table these books are just as instructive and sensible to-day as then from them we learn that the only kind of table furnishings used at that time were cups to drink out of spoons and knives to eat with chafing dishes to serve hot food chargers for display and for serving large quantities of food salt cellars and trenchers for use as plates there were very few other table appointments used on any english table either humble or great when the pilgrims landed at plymouth one of the most important articles for setting the table was the trencher these were made of wood and often were only a block of wood about ten or twelve inches square and three or four deep hollowed down into a sort of bowl in the middle in this the food was placed porridge meat vegetables etc each person did not have even one of these simple dishes usually two children or a man and his wife ate out of one trencher this was a custom in england for many years and some very great people a duke and his wife not more than a century and a half ago sat side by side at the table and ate out of one plate to show their unity and affection it is told of an old connecticut settler a deacon that he had a wood-turning mill he thought he would have a trencher apiece for his children so he turned a sufficient number of round trenchers in his mill for this his neighbors deemed him deeply extravagant and putting on too many airs both as to quantity and quality since square trenchers one for use by two persons were good enough for any one even a deacon so great a warrior and so prominent a man in the colony as miles standish used wooden trenchers at the table as also did all the early governors 
nor did they disdain to name them in their wills as valued household possessions for many years college boys at harvard ate out of wooden trenchers at the college mess table i have seen a curious old table-top or table-board which permitted diners seated at it to dispense with trenchers or plates it was of heavy oak about six inches thick and at intervals of about eighteen inches around its edge were scooped out deep bowl-shaped holes about ten inches in diameter in which each individual share of the dinner was placed after each meal the top was lifted off the trestles thoroughly washed and dried and was ready for the next meal poplar wood is an even white and shining wood until the middle of this century poplar wood trenchers and plates were used on the table in vermont and were really attractive dishes from earliest days the indians made and sold many bowls and trenchers of maple wood knots one of these bowls owned by king philip is at the rooms of the massachusetts historical society in boston old wood trenchers and indian bowls can be seen at the memorial hall in deerfield bottles were made also of wood and drinking cups and noggins which were a sort of mug with a handle wood furnished many articles for the table to the colonists just as it did in the later days on our western frontiers where trenchers of wood and plates of birch bark were seen in every log cabin the word tankard was originally applied to a heavy and large vessel of wood banded with metal in which to carry water smaller wooden drinking tankards were subsequently made and used throughout europe and were occasionally brought here by the colonists the plainly shaped wooden tankard made of staves and hoops here shown is from the collection at deerfield memorial hall it was found in the house of rev eli moody these commonplace tankards of staves were not so rare as the beautiful carved and hoop tankard which is here pictured which is in the collection of mrs samuel bone duria of brooklyn i have seen a few other quaintly carved ones black with age in american families of huguenot descent these were apparently swiss carvings the chargers or large round platters found on every dining table were of pewter some were so big and heavy that they weighed five or six pounds apiece pewter is a metal never seen for modern table furnishing or domestic use in any form to-day but in colonial times what was called a garnish of pewter that is a full set of pewter platters plates and dishes was the pride of every good housekeeper and also a favorite wedding gift it was kept as bright and shining as silver 
one of the duties of children was to gather a kind of horsetail rush which grew in the marshes and because it was used to scour pewter was called scouring rush pewter bottles of various sizes were sent to the massachusetts bay colony in sixteen twenty nine governor endicott had one but they were certainly far from common dram cups wine mugs and funnels of pewter were also occasionally seen but scarcely form part of ordinary table furnishings methaglin cans and drinking mugs of pewter were found on nearly every table pewter was used until this century in the wealthiest homes both in north and south and was preferred by many who owned rich china among the pewter lovers was the revolutionary patriot john hancock who hated the clatter of the porcelain plates porringers of pewter and occasionally of silver were much used at the table chiefly for children to eat from these were a pretty little shallow circular dish with a flat-pieced handle some had a fish-tail handle these are said to be dutch these porringers were in many sizes from tiny little ones two inches in diameter to those eight or nine inches across when not in use many housekeepers kept them hanging on hooks on the edge of a shelf where they formed a pretty and cheerful decoration the poet swift says the porringer that in a row hung high and made a glittering show it should be stated that the word porringer as used by english collectors usually refers to a deep cup with a cover and two handles while what we call porringers are known to these collectors as bleeding basins or tasters here we apply the term taster or wine taster to a small shallow silver cup with bosses in the bottom to reflect the light and show the color and quality of wine i have often seen the item wine taster in colonial inventories and wills but never bleeding basin while porringers were almost universal on such lists some families had a dozen i have found fifteen in one old new england farmhouse the small porringers are sometimes called posnets which is an old-time word that may originally have referred to a posset cup spoon says the learned archaeologist laborde if not as old as the world are as old as soup all the colonists had spoons and certainly all needed them for at that time much of their food was in the form of soup and soup meat such as had to be eaten with spoons when there were no forks meat was usually made into hashes or ragouts thick stews and soups with chopped vegetables and meats were common as were hotch-pots the cereal foods which formed so large a part of english fare in the new world were more frequently boiled in porridge than baked in loaves many of the spoons were of pewter worn-out pewter plates and dishes could be recast into new pewter spoons 
the molds were of wood or iron the spoon mold of one of the first settlers of greenfield massachusetts named martindale is here shown with a pewter spoon in this mold all his spoons and those of his neighbors were cast it is now in the deerfield memorial hall a still more universal spoon material was alchemy also called alchemy 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 etc a metal never used now which was made of a mixture of pan brass and arsenicum wooden spoons too were always seen in pennsylvania and new york laurel was called spoonwood because the indians made pretty white spoons from the wood to sell to the colonists horn was an appropriate and available material for spoons many indian tribes excelled as they do today in the making of horn spoons the vulgar affirmation by the great horn spoon has perpetuated their familiar use every family of any considerable possessions or owning good household furnishings had a few silver spoons nearly every person owned at least one at the time america was settled the common form of silver spoon in england had what was known as a baluster stem and a seal head the assay mark was in the inner part of the bowl but the fashion was just changing and a new and much altered form was introduced which was made in large numbers until the opening reign of george the first this shape was the very one without doubt in which many of the spoons of the first colonists were made and wherever such spoons are found if they are genuine antiques they may safely be assigned a date earlier than seventeen fourteen the handle was flat and broad at the end where it was cleft in three points which are turned up that is not toward the back of the spoon this was known as the hind's foot handle the bowl was a perfectly regular ellipse and was strengthened by continuing the handle in a narrow tongue or rat tail which ran down the back of the bowl the succeeding fashion in the early part of the eighteenth century had a longer elliptical bowl the end of the handle was rounded and turned up at the end and it had a high sharp ridge down the middle this was known as the old english shape and was in common use for half a century about the period of our revolutionary war a shape nearly like the one in ordinary present use became the mode the bowl became egg-shaped and the end of the handle was turned down instead of up the rat-tail which extended down the back of the bowl was shortened into a drop apostle spoons and monkey spoons for extraordinary use were occasionally made and a few are still preserved examples of five types of spoons are shown from the collection of edward holbrook 
Esquire of New York. Families of consequence had usually a few pieces of silver besides their spoons and the silver salt. Some kind of drinking cup was the usual form. Persons of moderate means often owned a silver cup. I have seen in early inventories and lists the names of a large variety of silver vessels, tankards, beer bowls, beakers, flagons, wine cups, wine bowls, wine cans, tasters, caudal cups, posset cups, dram cups, punch bowls, tumblers, mugs, dram bottles, two-eared cups, and flasks. Virginians and Marylanders in the 17th century had much more silver than New Englanders. Some Dutch merchants had ample amounts. It was deemed a good and safe investment for spare money. Bread baskets, salvers, muffiners, chafing dishes, casters, milk pitchers, sugar boxes, candlesticks, appear in inventories at the end of the century a tankard or flagon even if heavy and handsome would be placed on the table for everyday use and other pieces were usually set on the cupboard's head for ornament the handsome silver tankard owned by sarah jansen de rapalgy is here shown she was the first child of European parents born in New Netherland. The tankard was a wedding gift from her husband, and a Dutch wedding scene is graven on the lid. There was a great desire for glass, a rare novelty to many persons at the date of colonization. The English were less familiar with its use than settlers who came from continental Europe. The establishment of glass factories were attempted in early days in several places, chiefly to manufacture sheet glass, but with slight success. Little glass was owned in the shape of drinking vessels, none used generally on the table, I think during the first few years. Glass bottles were certainly a great rarity, and were bequeathed with special mention in wills and they are the only form of glass vessel named the earliest glass for table use was greenish in color like coarse bottle glass and poor in quality sometimes decorated in crude designs in a few colors bristol glass in the shape of mugs and plates was next seen it was opaque a milky white color and was coarsely decorated with vetrifiable colors in a few lines of red green yellow or black occasionally with initials dates or scriptural references though shapes were varied and the number was generally plentiful there was no attempt made to give separate drinking cups of any kind to each individual at the table blissfully ignorant of the existence or presence of microbes germs and bacteria our sturdy and unsqueamish forebears drank contentedly in succession from a single vessel which was passed from hand to hand and lip to lip around the board 
even when tumbler-shaped glasses were seen in many houses flip glasses they were called they were of communal size some held a gallon and all drank from the same glass the great punch-bowl not a very handy vessel to handle when filled with punch was passed up and down as freely as though it were a loving cup and all drank from its brim at college tables and even at tavern boards where table neighbors might be strangers the flowing bowl and foaming tankard was passed serenely from one to another and replenished to pass again leather was perhaps the most curious material used pitchers bottles and drinking cups were made of it great jugs of heavy black leather waxed and bound and tipped with silver were used to hold metheglin ale and beer and were a very substantial and at times a very handsome vessel the finest examples i have ever seen are here represented the stitches and wax thread at the base and on the handles can plainly be perceived they are bound with a rich silver band and have a silver shield bearing a date of gift to samuel brenton in seventeen seventy eight but they are probably a century older than that date they are a property by inheritance of miss rebecca shaw aged ninety-six years of wickford rhode island the use of these great leather jacks in a clumsier form than here shown led to the amusing mistake of a french traveller that the english drank their ale out of their boots these leather jugs were commonly called blackjacks and the larger ones were bombards giskin was an, still another and rarer name drinking cups were sometimes made of horn a handsome one has been used since colonial days on long island for quince drink a potent mixture of hot rum sugar and quince marmalade or preserves it has a base of silver a rim of silver and a cover of horn tipped with silver a stirrup cup of horn tipped with silver was used to speed the parting guest occasionally the whole horn in true medieval fashion was used as a drinking cup often they are carved with considerable skill as the beautiful ones in the collection of mr a g richmond of kanajahari new york gourds were plentiful on the farm and gathered with care that the hard-shell fruit might be shaped into simple drinking cups in elizabeth's time silver cups were made in the shape of these gourds the ships that brought the lemons and raisins of the sun from the tropics to the colonists also brought coconuts since the thirteenth century the shells of coconuts have been mounted with silver feet and covercles in a goblet shape and been much sought after by englishmen mounted in pewter and sometimes in silver or simply shaped with a wooden handle attached the shell of the coconut was a favorite among the english settlers to this day one of the coconut shell cups or dippers is a favorite drinking cup of many a handsome coconut goblet richly mounted in silver is shown in the accompanying illustration it was once the property of the revolutionary patriot john hancock 
and is now in the custody of the Bostonian Society at the Old State House in Boston, Massachusetts. Popular drinking mugs of the English, from which especially they drank their mead, metheglin, and ale, were the stoneware jugs which were made in Germany and England in the 16th and 17th centuries in great numbers. An English writer in 1579 spoke of the English custom of drinking from pots of earth of sundry colors and molds, whereof many are garnished with silver or leastwise with pewter. Such a piece of stoneware is the oldest authenticated drinking jug in this country, which was brought here and used by English colonists. It was the property of Governor John Winthrop, who came to Boston in 1630, and now belongs to the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, Massachusetts. It stands eight inches in height, is apparently of German gressware and is heavily mounted in silver. The lid is engraved with a quaint design of Adam and Eve and the tempting serpent in the apple tree. It was a gift to John Winthrop's father from his sister, Lady Mildmay, in 1607, and was then and is now labeled a stone pot tipped and covered with a silver lid. Many other Boston colonists had similar stone jugs, Flanders jugs, tip jugs. What were known as Fulham jugs were also much prized. The most interesting ones are the Georges Rex jugs, those marked with a crown and initials G.R., or a medallion head of the first of the English Georges. I know of one of these jugs which has a revolutionary bullet embedded in its tough old side and is not even cracked. Many of them had pewter or silver lids which are now missing. Some have the curious hound handle which was so popular with English potters. There was no china in common use on the table and little owned even by persons of wealth throughout the seventeenth century either in england or america delftware was made in several factories in holland at the time the dutch settled in new netherland but even in the towns of its manufacture it was not used for tableware the pieces were usually of large size what were called state pieces for cabinet and decorative purposes the dutch settlers however had quote, purslin cups unquote, and earthen dishes in considerable quantities toward the end of the century the earthen was possibly delftware and the purslin india china which by this time was largely imported to holland some portuguese and spanish pottery was imported but was not much desired as it was ill-fired and perishable it was not until revolutionary times that china was a common table furnishing then it began to crowd out pewter the sudden and enormous growth of east india commerce and the vast cargoes of chinese pottery and porcelain wares brought to american ports soon gave ample china to every housewife 
in the southern colonies beautiful isolated pieces of porcelain such as vast punch bowls often were found in the homes of opulent planters but there as in the north the first china for general table use was the handleless teacups usually of some canton ware which crept with the fragrant herb into every woman's heart both welcome oriental waifs it may well be imagined that this long narrow table with a high salt cellar in the middle with clumsy wooden trenchers for plates with round pewter platters heaped high with a stoop of meat and vegetables with a great noggin or two of wood a can of pewter or a silver tanker to drink from with leather jacks to hold beer or milk with many wooden or pewter and some silver spoons but no forks no glass no china no covered dishes no saucers did not look much like our dinner tables today. even the seats were different there were seldom chairs or stools for each person a long narrow bench without a back called a form was placed on each side of the table children in many households were not allowed to sit even on these uncomfortable forms while eating many times they had to stand by the side of the table during the entire meal in old-fashioned families that uncomfortable an ungracious custom lasted till this century i know of children not fifty years ago standing thus at all meals at the table of one of the judges of the supreme court he had a bountiful table was a hospitable entertainer and a well-known epicure but the children sat not at his board each stood at his own place and had to behave with decorum and eat in entire silence in some families children stood behind their parents and other grown persons and food was handed back to them from the table so we are told this seems closely akin to throwing food to an animal and must have been among people of very low station and social manners in other houses they stood at a side table and trencher in hand ran over to the great table to be helped to more food when their first supply was eaten the chief thought on the behavior of children at the table which must be inferred from all the accounts we have of those times in that they were to eat in silence as fast as possible regardless of indigestion and leave the table as speedily as might be in the little book called a pretty little pocket-book printed in america about the time of the revolution i found a list of rules for the behavior of children at the table at that date they were ordered never to seat themselves at the table until after the blessing had been asked and their parents told them to be seated they were never to ask for anything on the table never to speak unless spoken to 
always to break the bread not to bite into a whole slice never to take salt except with a clean knife not to throw bones under the table one rule read hold not thy knife upright but sloping lay it down at the right hand of the plate with the end of the blade on the plate another look not earnestly at any other person that is eating when children had eaten all that had been given them if they were quote, moderately satisfied unquote, they were told to leave at once the table and room when the table-board described herein was set with snowy linen cloth and napkins and ample fare it had some compensations for what modern luxuries it lacked some qualifications for inducing contentment superior even to our beautiful table settings there was nothing perishable in its entire furnishing no frail and costly china or glass whose injury and destruction by clumsy or heedless servants would make the heart of the housekeeper ache and her anger nourish the germs of tomains within her there was little of the intrinsic value to watch and guard and worry about there was little to make extra and difficult work no glass to wash with anxious care no elaborate silver to clean only a few pieces of pewter to polish occasionally it was all so easy and so simple when compared with the complex and varied paraphernalia and accompaniments of serving of meals to-day that it was like arcadian simplicity in virginia the table furnishings were similar to those in new england but there were greater contrasts in table appointments there was more silver and richer food but the negro servants were so squalid clumsy and uncouth that the incongruity made the meals very surprising and at times repellent when dinners of state were given in the large towns the table was not set or served like the formal dinner of to-day for all the sweets pastries vegetables and meats were placed on the table together with a grand conceit for the ornament in the centre at one period when pudding was part of the dinner it was served first thus the old-time saying is explained which always seemed rather meaningless i came early in pudding time there was considerable formality in portioning out the food especially in carving which was regarded as much more than a polite accomplishment even as an art i have seen a list of sixty or seventy different terms in carving to be applied with exactness to different fish fowl and meats an old author says quote, how all must regret to hear some persons even of quality say pray cut out the chicken or in or have that plover not considering how indiscreetly they talk when the proper terms are break that goose thrust that chicken spoil that hen pierce that plover if they are so much out in common things 
how much more would they be with herons cranes and peacocks unquote. it must have required good judgment and constant watchfulness never to say spoil that hen when it was a chicken or else be thought hopelessly ill-bred there were few state dinners however served in the american colonies even in the large cities there were few dinners even of many courses not always were there many dishes there were still seen in many homes more primitive forms of serving and eating meals than were indicated by the lack of individual drinking cups the mutual use of trenchers or even the utilization of the table-top as a plate in some homes an abundant dish such as a vast bowl of suppon and milk a pumpkin stew whole in its shell or a savory and mammoth hotch-pot was set often smoking hot on the table-board and from this well-filled receptacle each hungry soul armed with a long-handled pewter or wooden spoon helped himself sometimes ladling his great spoonfuls into a trencher or bowl for more moderate and reserved after consumption just as frequently eating directly from the bountiful dish with a spoon that came and went from dish to mouth without reproach or thought of ill manners the accounts of travellers in all the colonies frequently tell of such repasts some termed it eating in the fashion of the dutch the reports of old settlers often recalled the general dish and some very distinguished persons joined in the circle around it and were glad to get it variety was of little account compared to quantity and quality a cheerful hospitality and grateful hearts filled the hollow place of formality and elegance by the time that newspapers began to have advertisements in them about seventeen fifty we find many more articles for use at the table but often the names were different from those used to-day our sugar bowls were called sugar boxes and sugar pots milk pitchers were milk jugs milk ewers and milk pots vegetable dishes were called basins pudding dishes twifflers small cups were called sneak cups we have still to-day a custom much like one of olden times when we have the crumbs removed from our tables after a course at dinner then a voider was passed around the table near the close of the dinner and into it the persons at the table placed their trenchers napkins and the crumbs from the table the voider was a deep wicker wooden or metal basket in the book of nurture written in fifteen seventy seven are these lines when meat is taken quite away and voiders in presence put you your trencher in the same and all your residence take you with your napkin and knife the crumbs that are for thee in the voider your napkin leave for it is a courtesy end of chapter four